Hey everyone, we have got a lot more to cover than we even normally do, so we are going to dive right in today. Last week, we launched a brand new series on a weekly rhythm of rest and work, and a whole lot more than that, that's called The Sabbath. And as we've been preparing for this series, one of the things I have been convicted about is how little attention I've been personally devoting myself to when it's in the Bible so much. And so we're going to be doing a deep dive as we begin this new year. And we want to join you, invite you to join us too as we take a closer look at one of the most misunderstood and ignored and necessary and delightful commandments that's ever been given. So let's go quick review of last last week. So last week, we saw that the Sabbath goes back to the beginning. In the opening pages of Genesis, God creates a dwelling place. And this dwelling place, it is like a sanctuary, but it is cosmic in its size and its scope. God creates it. He furnishes it. He puts people in it. It's a place of abundance and blessing and divine presence. And in Genesis, God does this in six days. And then on the seventh day, God uses this Hebrew word Shabbat, or they should say scripture uses this Hebrew word Shabbat to describe what God does on the seventh day. Shabbat's a word it means to cease. It means to stop doing what you're doing. And that's what God does on the seventh day. He Shabbats. He doesn't punch out, though, when he does this. He doesn't go home. God blesses that seven day, seventh day. He declares it to be holy. And then the scholars, they say, if you look at this language, it's as if now he enters this new dwelling place and he ascends his throne. And then after all of this, Scripture introduces another word that's a really important word when he comes to Sabbath. And that word is introduced in chapter 2, verse 15. It's the word nuach. And it appears, and it's this word that is used to describe a settling into a dwelling place, a resting into a place that is safe and secure, a place where you can experience peace and rest. And this is really interesting, that same word, nuach, that is about you're entering into, you're being placed in this, this, this spot of rest and security. It's the same word that describes when Noah's ark was rested into the mountains. So as you're being rested, people are being rested into the Garden of Eden, same word, Noah's ark being rested into the mountains of Ararat. That's just cool. So God nuachs. He nuachs the first man into this incredible garden sanctuary. And then God creates another person to enjoy creation with. So together, this is ideal. You've got two people. They're both walking with God. They're made for each other. There's no sin or anything separating them. No shame. They're dwelling in this place that's filled with light and life and abundance. And then people rebel. And it's as if this creative work that God had done, it's, be, it's like it's being undone now, like undone. Their relationship with God, it's broken. It's like you're going backwards. You're going backwards to pre-Shabbat. That's what it's like. The relationship with God is broken. Relationship with one another is broken. Relationship with the rest of creation is broken. There's chaos. There's darkness. Disorder. There's death. And then they get cast out of this dwelling place that they once were nuached into. So, this brings us up, then, that's the review, that brings us up to this week. We're calling this week's message, Sabbath in the Wilderness. And we're calling it that because what we're trying to talk about here is how do you experience Sabbath, peace, and rest on the outskirts of the garden? How, how do you access this? How do you access what was lost when we rebelled against our Creator? 
So here's what we're going to attempt to do today. Settle in a little bit, because this is going to take a a little while to cover some of this, but hopefully it's going to be so worth it. Today we're going to give you a 10,000-foot overview of how God now graciously extends that, re-extends that Sabbat invitation. How does he do that? We're going to cover today from the end of Genesis, not only to the end of the Old Testament, we're going to take you all the way up to the start of the New Testament. So not just from here to the end of the Old Testament, but then there's about 400 years extra that we're going to talk about. And I think that 400 extra years is so key. All right, so we got a lot to cover. Let's keep moving. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. In the Old Testament, Sabbath set God's people apart. Sabbath set God's people apart. We're about to see God is going to introduce a seven-day rhythm of work and rest and so much more. And that rhythm, there was nothing like it in the ancient world. So we're going to show you here in a minute where it reappears. But first, I want to quickly point out two ways that Sabbath set God's people apart. Number one, they had a very different king. The people of God had a very different king. We see this so clearly in the book of Exodus, the book that follows Genesis. Many generations after the first man was nuached into the garden, and many generations after Noah's ark was nuached into the mountains, God elected to give a very Eden-like blessing to a man named Abraham. Many generations after that, the book of Exodus then opens up with echoes of language that we heard in Genesis. The blessing that was given to Abraham, you start seeing the blessing of Genesis. There's a lot of fruitful and multiplying. And so when Exodus opens up, there's all of these people, all these children of, children of Israel. And they're in the land of Egypt at the time. And there arises a new king, a new pharaoh in Egypt. And for 400 years, the pharaohs enslave the Hebrew people. The pharaohs, they are the anti-Sabbath. The anti-Sabbath. And it's interesting, all of these curses and toil that were associated with humanity's rebellion, all the stuff you see after the fall, it's, it's, it's personified in Pharaoh. All of those things. Under Pharaoh, there's no rhythm of work and rest. Days of toil and misery to just all blurred together until God rises, raises up a deliverer, Moses. Now, in a pa- podcast that we're going to reference later, that team from the Bible Project, did such a great job of connecting what's known as the 10 great acts of creation, of divine speech that are in Genesis 1. There's these 10 great, you know, words of of God where he creates. And they connect that to the 10 curses, the 10 plagues in Egypt. It is, it's brilliant. I really encourage you to to listen to that. And think about it, maybe this whole thing. In Egypt, when, when they're under this curse, they're collapsing back into darkness instead of light. And consider all these things that God created and blessed. The the waters, the land bearing abundant fruit, living creatures, thriving and multiplying, it's all going in reverse. It's as if it's echoing the creation, but backwards. These very things became cursed. In fact, one example, locusts, you know the word that it uses for the locusts coming into Egypt? Nuach. God nuached the locusts into Egypt. Fascinating. You've got creation turning against you instead of working for you, instead of this abundant land, right, providing for you. Now creation's actually fighting against you under this curse. Here's another example. In Genesis, the very last day of creation, the final step, what? It's God breathes life 
into the first person, right? And, and, and this man is, is born. It, well, what's the last curse in, in, in Egypt? It's the death of the firstborn son. It's just, there's all these parallels. There's too many parallels between Genesis and Exodus to, and they're far too direct to be coincidence. Let me just give you one more, one more. In the beginning, it says the spirit was hovering over the waters, the waters, the breath of God was hovering over the waters. And then the waters get separated so that there's water and land so that people and these animals and the plants can thrive on the land. What happens as he's delivering the people from the Exodus? They come to the waters, the wind, the breath parts the waters so the people can cross on what? Land. It's, <laughs> scripture is so rich. All right, so the God of Abraham and Moses is a God. He hears the cries of his people. He is willing and able to deliver them from the slavery of the anti-Sabbath, from the pharaohs, this never-ending toil and labor. He can deliver them from that. Their part is then to walk it out. Well, the God of Shabbat, he is a very different king than the kings of this world. And he delivers his people out of slavery, never ending toil and labor. And when he does, he commands them to Shabbat every seven days. This command to Shabbat, it is introduced. Think about this. It is introduced in the context of garden-like situation, of an abundance of food and provision in this wilderness. God provides food, and in the wilderness, they called it manna, manna, manna. It appears for six days. It does not appear on the seventh day. And here's a verse from the section of the Bible where all this appears. This is then the first appearance of Sabbath um, after the after the creation. This is found in Exodus chapter 16, verses 25 through 26. And if you don't have a Bible, a great place you could go right now is to Bible.com. They have a free Bible app that you can download. All right, here we go. Exodus chapter 16, verses 25 through 26. Moses said of this manna, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today, you will not find it out in the field. Six days you are to gather it, but on the Seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So what would happen is for six days, this manna would just appear every morning. On the sixth day, there would be a double portion that they could take in, and then there would be none on the seventh. Instead of, think again, the contrast here, different kind of king. Instead of a king who is constantly demanding things from you, constantly, like the kings of this world, what does the king do? He provides for them as he did in the beginning. And in this case, he provides a double portion on what would later become known as this day of preparation, the sixth day, so that they could Shabbat on the seventh. This is a very different king. And I encourage you to write this down too. It was also a very different kingdom. Sabbath set them apart, and they were a very part of a very different kingdom. As the king reveals more and more about Sabbath, the more we begin to catch a glimpse of the kind of kingdom that he's inviting people into. This is a kingdom where there's a rhythm of life-giving, good work, and rest. And it's for everybody together on the same day. It is not a situation where, hey, rich and powerful people, you get to rest while the other people do all the work for you. It's not about that. Everyone rests. It's spelled out in Scripture. Your sons and daughters rest. Your servants rest. The sojourners within your gates rest. Everyone rests. 
And one of the things that really hit me um, when I was studying all this was how that's the only way that this works. Because I was thinking, well, God, why why do you have to, you know, why would we restrict things like travel? Well, if we're traveling, someone has to be there to help us with the traveling. If we're eating out, someone has to provide that food. The only way this works for everyone is if everyone is Shabbating at the same time. In God's kingdom, he extends those Sabbath rites to everybody. And as more and more is revealed about the Sabbath, it starts to sound a whole lot more like Genesis 1 and 2 because Sabbath principles apply to the land. They apply to the land and to the animals. God is restoring this broken relationship, not just with one another, but also with the environment itself. There's a Sabbath year. Every seven years, there's a year of jubilee after seven cycles of seven years. And that one specifically prevents people from gaining too much power at the expense of others. There's even a Sabbath song in the Bible. Psalm 92, it's, the, it's a sat, psalm for the Sabbath. You can find it in the scriptures. Sabbath is one of the ways where his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. No wonder that one of the, the terms that is used to describe Sabbath in the Old Testament is delight. Sabbath is a delight. As residents of this new kingdom, also then, there's responsibilities. And here's something that I was reminded of as I was diving back in the Old Testament. There's a place to write this down if you downloaded our notes. Sabbath is a command. It's a command. And we've got two references there that we're going to take a look at. One of the sources I looked at, they referred to God delivering his people from Pharaoh in the Exodus to regime change. I'm like, yes, it's regime change from a really bad anti-Sabbath king to a really good king. That's great imagery. You were servants of Pharaoh. Here's what it means to follow me. Now, the context for this command that's given in Exodus, the verses there, it's a mountain. Mount Sinai. And it happens not long after the exodus from Egypt. On that mountain, God gives ten commandments or ten words. Ten words in Genesis, ten words with the commandments, ten plagues. There's a lot of this going on. And this is, these ten words are part of a larger covenant with his people. It's interesting, these first three commandments are about the relationship with God. The last six commandments are about relationships with one another. And Sabbath is right there, like a hinge between these two, between the first three and the last six. Okay, here's how the Sabbath command appears as commandment number four in Exodus 20, verses, uh, we're looking at 8 through 11. So Exodus chapter uh, 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not... You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth, the heavens and earth and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's worth noting there are more words with this commandment in the Ten Commandments than any of the other Commandments. It's the like longest one of them. Longest one of all the commandments. Now, remember, we're reading in Exodus here. In Exodus, they'd just been delivered from 400 years of slavery. 
In Egypt, there's no rest, at least not for them. But now they're being called to serve a God who Shabbats every seven days. They're invited to Shabbat with them. Okay, so that's the context for Exodus. The context for Deuteronomy is fast forward 40 years. Now they're on the gateway to entering into the promised land. So now that's the context that we're about to look at as these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words are given again, right there on the border of the promised land. And it's really interesting. The scripture uses the language now. It says that manna shabbated when they were about to enter this new land, flowing with milk and honey. Funny how that works, huh? All right, so anyway, the Exodus passage, God didn't need to remind them they were slaves. They just came out of slavery. Look at how the words are adjusted a little bit in Deuteronomy because all of that generation have died. So now this is a new generation. So you're going to see at the end, the words are switched a little bit from, hey, you know, back then in Exodus, you didn't have to say, remember your slaves because they were all there. But now as they're going into this new land of Deuteronomy, it's, hey, remember your people were enslaved. Don't do this to others as you go into this new land. So here we go. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your livestock, nor the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant and your female servant may rest well as you, as well as you. For you shall remember, here's where it gets a little different, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So there it is again in Exodus 5. There's an extra emphasis on be like your new king. In Deuteronomy, the emphasis is don't be like Pharaoh. Sabbath day. The Sabbath command, it is purposeful, as all of the commands are. And so here's a question that is haunting me. I've got a couple questions that are really haunting me as I'm trying to think, how do we apply this today in our lives? Here's one of the ones that, that really haunts me. Which of the other Ten Commandments no longer applies? You shall have no other gods. Sounds like that, right? You shall not bow to idols. You shall not misuse the name of your king. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet things that belong to others. Those are the other nine. Which of those don't apply? And yet, what do most of us do when it comes to Sabbath? We treat it very differently than the other nine commandments. I think that's an important question for us to wrestle with as we continue to study. We'll see if the New Testament speaks to that when we get to it. Now, in the Old Testament, the penalty for violating the Sabbath, does anyone know? It was death. Violating the Sabbath was death. That's how serious the king takes this. That's how serious he takes this necessary command. His kingdom is one where there's a rhythm of work and rest that benefits everyone and everything living in it. But here's one of the challenges that they faced, one of the challenges that we faced. I invite you to write this down. In the wilderness, it's easy to lose our way. Can I get an amen to that? It's just easy. It is easy to lose our way. 
And it wasn't long before those people who just got delivered, they're like, we want to go back to Egypt. I think this is going to be one of the primary challenges for many of us when it comes to applying Sabbath or even asking honest questions about it because Sabbath requires faith. It requires us to have faith that we're more secure in the hands of the Lord of the Sabbath than we are with the pharaohs of our day. It's going to take faith that a rhythm of rest and work is going to bring us closer to the life that we want than the rhythms that we would make up of our own performance or design. Okay, so in the Old Testament, when people began neglecting the Sabbath, that was considered a sign. There's all these words. Hey, you're neglecting the Sabbath. That is a sign that you are distancing yourself farther and farther away from the way of God. The Lord of the Sabbath, he calls enough to call, cares enough to call his people back home. So here's what happened. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Prophetic voices began to speak one after another, after another, after another, but they fell on deaf ears. Let me give you just a few examples. We'll start with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jewish leader. He'd been serving in the court of a king in the Persian Empire in a time when Israel had already been judged. Their walls had already been knocked down. People had been carried off into exile. And he heard about this, and it just just broke him when he heard that the walls were, were down and, and all these, it was just in a really bad place. But God gave him favor, and he was given permission to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Well, Nehemiah, as he's there, he's realizing these walls are not going to stay up if people continue to dishonor God. And so one of the things he does, he starts noticing people breaking the Sabbath, and he calls them out. This is out of Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 through 18. In those days, I saw Judah, people in Judah, treading rind presses on the Sabbath, bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them. On the day when the when they sold food, I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not, look at this, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster upon us and this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah had to go as far as stationing people at the gates so they wouldn't be bringing the, 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 the things back in, in and out to be selling. Amos, Amos picks up on this too. He calls people out who are just going through the motions on the Sabbath. In fact, he gets very specific. He goes, yeah, you're, you're doing all the Sabbath, you know, Shabbating and all this kind of stuff. And the whole time you're thinking, all right, when's this thing over? So I can go back to acting corrupt, corruptly and in this case, scamming people out of their money, especially the poor. Here's how he says it. Amos chapter eight, verses four through five. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, all right, when is the new moon going to be over? When can we sell grain? And the Sabbath, when is it going to be over so we can offer wheat for sale? And then he goes on to say, and what they were doing is they were cheating on the scales and all this kind of stuff. Sabbath is not about going through the motions. It's about understanding what is the point of this? Why does God have us doing this? And part of the point was to protect people, protect people from being in constant toil and being cheated out of these kinds of things. All right, Prophet Jeremiah, he talks about blessings associated with the Sabbath and how Sabbath-keeping, oh, if you keep the Sabbath, he says, Jerusalem will be inhabited forever, he says, if you do that. But if you don't, if you don't, here's what's going to happen. Jeremiah seventeen twenty-seven. But if you don't listen to me and you don't keep the Sabbath day holy and do not bear a burden, and not, and 
and you start bearing burdens and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire at its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And those, those fires shall not be quenched. Prophet Isaiah, he's got a lot to say about this. In Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah talks about a God, how God hates their worship. God hates their worship, he says. I'm weary of your religious festivals, he says. I'm not going to listen to your prayers, he says. Because you're doing all this activity, all this religious activity, and it's empty. It's empty. You don't care about doing good. You don't care about the widows and orphans, the oppressed. In chapter 58, he says it like this. 58 verses 13 to 14. If you turn your back, or if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. Now, I highlighted that because I think that's a principle we're going to have to circle back to, isn't it? Your pleasure on my holy day. Are you just making something up that works for you? Or are you really trying to understand what I'm trying to say? And call the Sabbath a delight. Oh, call the Sabbath a delight. And the holy day of God honorable. If you honor it, not going, what does it say? Your own ways. Or seeking your own pleasure, or take talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One of the passages also that haunts me a whole lot as I'm trying to wrestle with, God, what do you want? Knowing it's a delight, he, he has our good in mind. There's a phrase that's repeated in Scripture a lot, my Sabbath, my Sabbath, my Sabbath. God's saying, my Sabbath, my Sabbath. I wonder if sometimes we misuse the word Sabbath. We call something Sabbath that's our Sabbath rather than his Sabbath. I almost wonder. So again, we have to wait till we get to the New Testament to see if there's any correctives here, but this is really interesting stuff. All right. The further we drift from Sabbath, at least what we're seeing in the Old Testament, the further we drift from Sabbath, the further we distance ourselves from the garden. And we see this happening literally in the history of, of Israel. Right there in the land of promise, that they were nuacht into, it's as if they're now living in a pre-Shabbat world because we're going back to darkness. We're going back to chaos. We're going back to brokenness and death. And that brings us to the end of the Old Testament. Now, there's so much more we didn't have time to cover. I want to invite everybody to take a deeper dive into this. So we created a resource hub. You can go to emmanuel.church slash resources. You're going to find a list of 150 passages in the Bible that directly reference the Sabbath. We got links to a short video. We got links to a 14 episode podcast by the team at the Bible Project. We got great Bible study resources. And then we have a list of books about Sabbath curated by our own Dr. Joel Lawrence. So tons of great stuff there. But before we close our time together today, I promise that we'd take some time looking at those 400 years, about 400 years, between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New. I've never done that study before when it comes to Sabbath. What was happening with Sabbath during that time? And does it even matter? Because the reason I would rhetorically say, yeah, it does matter, is because this is the world then that Jesus comes into. When Jesus speaks to the Sabbath, he's speaking you know, about the principles of God, but he's speaking in a context here that for 400 years has been developing. So what was happening during that time? Let's take a look. This is huge. Because one of the things that help we see here, there's a whole lot of stuff that develops during 400 years that wasn't in the Old Testament that now these people are calling law. So it's, it's getting fast. So here we go. Let's begin by writing this down 
in the resulting exile, remember we left off with all these prophetic voices are happening. They're not listening. So there's more exile. There's more occupation. Sabbath beliefs and practices diverged. Diverged. As we said earlier, all those prophetic voices, they fell on deaf ears. The consequences were exile and occupation. So the question among the faithful then becomes, how do you practice Sabbath when you've got like people occupying the temple, when we're getting exiled all over the place, when, when sometimes there's laws that if we obey the Sabbath, we're going to die? Like, how do we be faithful to Sabbath under these conditions? How do you practice Sabbath when the dwelling place that God gave you is now completely corrupted? And the abundance and the blessing and even the divine presence has become undone. That's what those faithful people were trying to figure out for those 400 years. The Old Testament's got a lot to say about the Sabbath, but it has surprisingly little to say about the actual details. Like it says, don't work, but it only has a handful of specifics on that. The All the extra stuff gets added during these times. And everyone wasn't on the same page when it comes to that. The bottom line is this, there was no consensus, no consensus in the years leading up to Jesus about what all the Sabbath laws were, what it looked like to actually observe the Sabbath. For example, take a group like the Pharisees. You don't even see the Pharisees in the Old Testament. They came into existence here in this time between the times. So look, we'll just take that group. It says it's not possible to summarize the Pharisaic view of the Sabbath. Because tradition was not monolithic. Generally, however, the Pharisees attempted to find precisely what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. So even the Pharisees as a group didn't all agree, but we, but in general, they were trying really hard to say exactly what. God, we don't want to get this wrong. Exactly what can we do? Exactly what we can't do. And so they tried to bring clarity where there was confusion. They tried to discern what was and wasn't appropriate. But again, Pharisees were only one of several groups. There were some who were a lot stricter than the Pharisees. There was a group that created their own community at a site called Qumran, out in the middle of nowhere, and they created Sabbath rules. And so there, some of the rules were so so specific. You can't drink anything outside of the camp. You can't draw water up into any vessel. You, you can't have voluntary fasting on the Sabbath. You, you can't open a sealed vessel. You can't wear perfume. You can't lift an animal that's fallen into a pit. So that's the, the, the group that was living in Qumran. Then there's the Essenes. Now, I don't know how this became a rule, and we try not to be crass, but just so you can see like how intense people got about this, here's a quote. The monkish Essenes in their desert communities forbade defecation on the Sabbath. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> in other words, they believed number two was a violation of commandment four, so hold it until Sunday. Hezekiah, I don't know how that all works. All right, so now there's also the rabbis. In the intertestamental period, you also have these rabbis there too. And there were two rabbinic traditions that developed concerning the Sabbath. There was one lane that was concerned about how do we get this exactly right? There was another lane that was more, okay, what are the principles? And how do we apply the principles? So within the category of rabbi, which were spiritual teachers. That's what Jesus was considered to be in his day. So Jesus is going to be taking a stand somewhat on this. Within that category, some believe follow lots of rules. Others believe honor the principles. Okay, how far did some of these spiritual teachers drift from the Bible itself? Listen to this. Here's an example. There was a rabbi who taught 
if you are not a Jew and you keep the Sabbath, then you should be put to death. Okay. Does that sound like the actual scriptures? That's the opposite, right? Sabbath is for who? Everyone. So clearly you got some people trying really hard to get this right. And you got other people like, how do you get that from, from this? That's the world Jesus comes into. Over time, the rabbis were trying to hard, how do you separate like the laws from just some ideas about Sabbath? So they even have terms for this. There was this set of law, oral traditions they started to put into written laws. They call it holocaust or halakha. These were the laws and order, ordinances. This is like, okay, this is the stuff. We all have to follow this. And then there was other category called Haggadah, where this is like, okay, these are interpretations or these aren't prescriptive. So they're trying to sort all of this and they're trying to figure all this out. And then many beliefs about Sabbath evolved or changed over time. This also happened. One of the most dramatic examples comes from the age of a ruler named Antiochus. Antiochus, he was this, this foreign ruler who came in and he looted the temple in Jerusalem. He put an idol in it. He ordered the Jews, he said, you must sacrifice pigs on the altars that I create. So you're taking an unclean animal, you must sacrifice it to your God. Parents, listen to how tragic it is. Parents who circumcised their babies as the law instructed them to do, parents were killed and they hung the babies. During this time, there was a group of Jews. They identified themselves as the Hasidim or the pious ones. And they were hiding in a cave. And so Antiochus soldiers found them and they found him on the Sabbath. And they said, come on out, you know, surrender, or we'll kill you. And they, they're like, it's the Sabbath. So we're not even going to try to barricade because it'd be against our law to barricade. And they went in and they slaughtered them all. And so this was the time of, if you ever heard of the um, Maccabean revolt, revolt, this is happening during then. Um, and so the, one of the leaders of the rebel movement was actually also a priest. He heard about this massacre, and he said, that's it. Self-defense needs to be an exception to these rules. And so you even see them starting to make these adjustments and these changes based on reality. So, again, all of this is happening in these 400 years. People are trying to figure Sabbath out. Figure it out. What, what, what is this? Because you got some groups that are doing everything from you can't prepare food, you can't ride an animal, you can't sail a boat, you can't tie a knot, you can't carry an object out of your house. So you got people like doing that. And then you have others, they, the scholars call them the Hellenizers, people who are kind of following more Greek customs. They're like, Sabbath, whatever. So you've got just this whole range, this whole range of, of, of people. One of the books that um, Joel recommends is this one here. It's called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, as in holistically. It's by Marva, Marva Dawn. Um, she, she does a really important thing. She says, you know, often Christians will be very quick to point people out, you know, point fingers at people who were trying their best to figure out Sabbath back then. Oh, they're just legalistic, or they're just, look at all these rules, or whatever, whatever. You know, she says, be really cautious about that, because one— there's a whole lot of real sincere people that are like, I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to honor God. And that's really tricky. And, and I love this quote. She goes even further than that. She says, maybe as Christians, we should ask more questions like they were trying to ask. She says, Christians would do well to follow that kind of intentionality. If we were more deliberate about our lifestyles, 
we might be more conscious ourselves of God's grace, of who we are as God's people, and how discipleship involves careful choices. Paying such close attention to living a truly Christian lifestyle would give us a better witness to the world. Can I get an amen? I think so. I'm personally becoming more and more convinced that we've got a lot to learn about the Sabbath, including some of those things that were added later. Even if they're not, you know, obviously not at the same level of Scripture, there's some really good teaching that came up that's really practical. Like there was this, this one rabbi, he, he taught, okay, in the, in the Old Testament, they'll say you shouldn't be kindling a fire. He says, we should also apply that on the Sabbath to like, don't bring up stuff that's going to start a fight. Isn't that like just great advice? On the Sabbath, just don't get into it. Just don't, don't stir it up. You know, it's, some of you guys, like, if you open, if you look at your email, I don't, don't read that one that you know is gonna, like, set you off, right? That's just good advice. So, this is the world that Jesus stepped into. Confusion, a lot of chaos around the Sabbath, people believing all kinds of different things. And so, here's something I encourage you to write down. Jesus stepped into the world where Sabbath itself had been divisive. That's what we're going to pick up on next week. Context for Jesus. He steps into this world where Sabbath itself was divisive. And in that world where Sabbath itself become divisive, what does he model? What does he teach? Well, as we bring our time together to a close, I want to just tell you about one more example of the kind of thing that I'm just having so much fun with this series because I'm studying these words and I'm like, are you kidding me? That's the word that appears there. This idea of Sabbath rest, this idea that God nuaches us into places and even nuaches us into holiness and time. This idea, it's all over the Bible, that word nuach. It's just in some really interesting places where these places where our souls can connect with shalom, peace and centeredness and focus and connection with God. It's all over the Bible, including Psalm 23. I didn't know this. It's a, it's a psalm. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's a very familiar psalm to many people. There's a sacred poem in the Bible that we call Psalm 23, where God is compared to this good shepherd. And he leads us, he leads us, it says, beside still waters. The Hebrew word for still, nuach. He nuaches us into these still places. It's actually what they, it's the noun form. To be technical, it's the noun form of nuach, menuach. The same God who nuached people into the garden, the same God who nuached Noah's ark into the mountains, he's still the same God who leads us to the waters of nuach. Last question we got in our notes. Would your life be better if you spent more time beside still waters? There's a God who cares enough to say, at least once a week, hit pause on everything else. Trust that I'm going to take care of you. At least once a week, find that place of stillness. Let me nuach you into that. And we've got an incredible song that's going to help lead us there right now.